Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. The future of work is defined by continuous learning, but how can workplace learning be an effective and enjoyable experience that enriches both the organization and the individual? As technology continues to offer new ways of connecting and learning, it is more important than ever to use technology in a human-centered way, creating experiences that meet the learning and performance goals of the audience. My guest is a leader in the field of computer-based and online learning for over 20 years, immersed in both the research and practice of workplace learning. Dr. David Goralnik is a Columbia University adjunct professor and a consultant specialized in the use of technology to improve job performance. He is founder and CEO of Kaleidoscope Learning, the current president of the International E-Learning Association, and the founder and chair of the Learning Ideas Conference. David has been credited with the creation of the first corporate training learning by doing simulation, the first e-learning specific authoring tool, and the award-winning watch, rate, and compare e-learning approach. David has won over 200 awards in the e-learning industry, and his unique approach to his consulting and project work have saved over $2 billion due to improved employee performance for Fortune 500 and multinational clients, such as Target, IBM, GE, Time Warner, and many others. With his extensive knowledge of the industry, David focuses on reimagining learning in higher education and the workplace. I'm thrilled to have you, David, on this episode to share your insights on how to reimagine workplace learning. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start off, I wanted to ask you, what does workplace learning look like in most organizations? It's a huge field and workplaces do it differently. What do you see overarching kind of look of workplace learning and what kind of technologies are being used currently? Uh, sure, I mean, as, as, you, as you know, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's a huge field and it's, it's different in different organizations. You, you still see a mix of classroom learning, although during the pandemic, that's been obviously a change because you can't really do classroom in-person learning, self-paced online learning and sort of, you know, online sessions of different types uh, you see you know, mobile approaches now. So you see a lot of different different ways to do things. And it, and it tends to, you know, in most organizations that I've been in, tends to be fairly fairly fragmented. There are just a lot of different kinds of things. There are things, uh, there are jobs where you have required training that you have to do and at a certain time. There are jobs where you have required training you have to do, but it could be any time. There are things that are up to the employee. So it's, it's very much, I think, across the board. And technology is underlying it in a lot of different ways from managing and tracking everything, which is kind of a, a separate, a separate but related issue to learner experience and, you know, and, and being used in different ways, both synchronously and asynchronously online and through their people's laptops and desktops and mobile devices and, and now jump starting to move ahead to uh, other methods as well. And certainly as the technology is changing very, very quickly, and also the way business is changing very quickly, how are you seeing workplace learning changing? One of the big things that's happening is the idea of making it much more individualized. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of been, you know, over the past several years, really started to take hold a lot more. Um, you know, there was some older model, which was a little bit more, you know, people in lockstep, more like a traditional school class, which has its own, own issues as well. And moving now toward the idea that, that people need different things at different times, much more uh, just in time learning. So performance support. Um, really, so that's not necessarily learning, but something that can help you do a job more effectively and more efficiently. And that's, you know, that's a term that's been around for a while. And I, I think maybe never really caught on. It just doesn't roll all that well off the tongue. And I think that has not helped the term performance support, but it's of tremendous value. Companies, in my experience, have tended to fall into training when the right thing to do was was often train less. You don't need to teach people lots of things that they're not necessarily going to remember, even if they're taught in a, in a contextual way by the time they have to do them. 
and give them more ways to do the job just in time and more things to help them. So there's been, there's been an evolution in those ways. You're starting to see a lot more of that, a lot more just in time, a lot more shorter things, you know, moving away from the idea of, you know, everything has to be a big, a big class, kind of the way people grow up going to school. And so that's, that's definitely a positive. Yes, definitely. A lot of very quick changes happening. So my, my big question to you is in, in terms of reimagining what organizations, how they will design and incorporate workplace learning. Uh, There's a lot coming up and there's a lot of really good strategies that are important for the learning process. So what are you seeing as the approaches and the emerging technologies that will really be important for organizations to incorporate good learning? Yeah, no, that's that's a great thing. It's a great thing to talk about. You know, I think my view of workplace learning as a whole is that it's it's a really appropriate time to reimagine much much more substantially. Like I think to this point, while I've seen a lot of positive changes, as I mentioned, everything's been sort of evolutionary and maybe it's time to even be a little bit more revolutionary. You know, it, the tendency is when new technologies come along to employ them in ways that look kind of like the old technologies, right? Most people grew up going to schools where you would read something or listen to a lecture, you'd memorize some facts and you take a test. And you know, that was, that's a very common educational method. It's not a particularly effective educational method. No. It's common because it scales up or actually because it scaled up in a world or a pre-technology world, it scaled up very, very well. That's the big advantage is you can have one teacher and 20 people or hundred people or 500 people. And, and you, know, you can get that across and you can easily grade things efficiently and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that it's good learning. You know, the advantage that we have with technology is that we can do really, really interesting things where people follow more progressive educational principles with a much more individualized approach and do those in a way that scales up. So if we build fascinating, immersive simulation where you learn about ancient Greece by visiting key places in ancient Greece and interviewing an AI version of Socrates, well, that's really pretty cool. And you know Mm -hmm. what, once we have that, you can do that for a million people or 10 million people as easily as you can do it for one person. And so the scalability is there. And that's to me the big advantage of using technology in the way that I think we want to use it. Now, the tendency has been to start by taking existing methods and simply transferring them. So we see a lot of online courses where people read and take tests and and those are gonna be easier to distribute, but they're they're generally not gonna be as as effective as as the other things we can do. So to to kind of get back to specifics of of your question, I mean, there are a handful of approaches which I think generally drawn significantly from progressive education that I think work really, really well and technology help us create these kinds of experiences on a large scale. So one of them is learning by doing. And this goes back you know, all the way to John Dewey, uh, way, way back as a philosophy that people learn best by doing, uh, by performing a task, by practicing. Ideally, there's coaching guidance and, and feedback. It's you know, much more active approach to learning. And, and this is kind of the way learning used to be long ago. In the, in the old, old days, people learned as apprentices, right? They yes. learn, you learn a craft by working with someone and working with an expert. And you had this very personal relationship you know, you would start by doing, you want to learn to be a blacksmith, you might start by doing some cleaning, you don't get to do more than that, but you're watching and learning, and then you get to take a step up, and then you can help with some of the actual creation, and then mm-hmm. eventually you can become an expert. And once we needed to, to train masses of, of people, that became untenable. You didn't have enough enough experts, and you couldn't reach them. But learning by doing is still a fantastic philosophy, and it, it's always, in, in my view, sort of running, running behind where it should be in terms of utility, and technology gives us great opportunities to take advantage of that, and I'll talk about more, more about that in a second. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like in the scaling of education, some of the really important practices that are timeless in terms of how humans learn get lost. But technology is able to help us actually take those really important learning practices and scale it, as you said, wasn't necessarily possible when you were educating a whole nation or a whole population. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think what, what tends to happen is there's sort of the notion of the critical path or something that says it has to be done. And so the critical path kind of wins out, like the things that are necessary are going to win out. So, okay, well, we have to, we have to teach thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. So mm-hmm. we do what we can, yeah. but then as times change and technology changes, things tend to evolve based on the way they've been before. People grew up going to school and taking tests like that. That's their view of what education is. And, and it's it's harder to rethink that and realize that we now have the opportunity to go back to, to the methods that that worked better in certain ways and, and you know do that as you yeah. point out on, on a large scale. So what do you see as a, a good example of 
learning by doing and a lot of organizations are trying to and some do it very successfully having learning while you are working on the problems that you would be working on in your job but what is an example that stands out for you an organization that has really done this well the learning by doing matching it up with the right technology to be able to scale it I, I think you're absolutely right i mean learning in the context of doing the job works really well and it, it kind of depends on the job like there are, are some jobs that you have to you know you have to really be good at before you can do the job and, and some jobs you you don't right so we actually my company um at kaleidoscope owning we've done a fair amount of training in customer service and, and sales and areas like that um and in terms of, of online learning and so one of the more memorable products was a, a learn by doing simulations actually a number of years ago where people learn customer service um and this is for uh, target stores for a large retailer in the us and people learn customer service skills by interacting with customers on video and having to handle the problems that they have so the customers would come up and they'd have a problem they're returning a pair of shoes because they're claiming that they're falling apart but if you you're playing the role of the customer service person and you can inspect the shoes and then you start to believe that maybe that they really aren't just falling apart maybe this guy did something and you know do you give him his refund do you not give him his refund and there are both policies to to follow and decisions to make about whether you follow the strict policy, whether you bend, and then a lot of decisions to make about how to interact with this person who's already uh, coming in angry because issues are falling apart, whoever's fault it may actually be, and you have to calm them down. So that's one where you actually have to get pretty good at this job before you can do that. You know, you can't have people learning how to be good at customer service in front of actual customers because actual customers don't really respond all that well to that. <laughs> so here was one where the learning by doing simulation worked really, really nicely as, you know, as a key part of the learning process before they were actually doing the job. And there's actually another side effect, I guess just a little bit that might be worth, worth mentioning, especially for that. One of the things that happened with that particular learning by doing simulation is that people spent time talking about it because the characters were interesting and they were memorable and they were fun. And so, you know, the, the audience was primarily, I mean, a lot of these were college students, you know, working a part-time job. They, these weren't, it was not an audience who would spend their free time talking about their corporate training, typically, even their break time, but they actually did. I mean, anecdotally, from what we were, we were told, that they would spend time during their breaks, not always, they would also talk about what they did over the weekend, but they spent some of their time talking about, oh, the guy with the shoes, yeah, you know, did, you know, oh, I tried to make him a little bit angry, or did you, well, I just tried to calm him down. And they would actually talk about this stuff. That's really good. And it, it you know, it had the side effect of continuing learning in an interesting way, but also, you know, making them feel better about the company. I mean, you came into this job and you feel like this is going to be interesting. Like people come in, I think usually come into jobs thinking they they want to do them and enjoy them. At least they hope that. Mm. And sometimes the initial training that you get in a job, you know, especially an entry-level job can really just be a turnoff, right? Yes. Like you just feel like here I am, I'm a number, nobody's all that interested in me. I'm the hired help and this is what you will do. And well, sure, this was a mandated training, but it didn't have that feel. It felt much more exploratory and experimental and fun and interesting and, and sort of respectful in that sense, that this was a real problem that you'd face, not, you know, go memorize the, the 10 rules of how to handle angry customers, which also isn't going to make you any better at handling angry customers. And that's such an important point, because especially when technology became much more prevalent in workplace learning, as you said, the handbook was basically digitized. And that transferred into a very dry experience to go through, uh, which, as you said, reduces engagement in the organization and you don't feel like you're a real member and, and excited about your job. So actually thinking about that as well, when you're designing workplace learning and using the technology is how do you really engage people to bring it, them into the company? And I, I really like that example that you gave that people actually talked about it in their break and felt like they were more cared about in the in the organization and involved in it. Yeah, no, I think so. I think cared about and, and also respected. And I mm -hmm. think there's something to that. Some of the traditional forms of learning, obviously, you know, in a classroom, it depends a lot on who, who the instructor is, but sort of the, the underpinnings of sort of this, you know, you are new, you will memorize these things, you will learn from us, you will take a test. That entire model is putting people in a position from the beginning where they're, they're sort of almost not really respected, right? It's mm -hmm. almost like you are here to be a cog and to learn from us. And we want to move away from that. And that kind of gets to the second underlying concept I want to mention about how we can bring in technology is personalization. Personalized learning, you know, so critical in so many ways. And with the technology that we have now, particularly with, you know, what we're able to do, you know, I'd say with big data, but to me, it's almost like it's, it's almost small data more than big data, right? Like we're not really looking to, you know, we can learn from the big data, we can learn in the aggregate, and I think that's important, but we want to be careful to not 
overgeneralize from, you know, we're not trying to predict the winners of an election. We're trying to take each individual person and give them the best experience yes. for them. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can have a system learn about them, I know there's some, you know, privacy concerns and all that, but the more, you know, from the experience standpoint, we can have a system learn everything from what someone's skills and, and strengths and weaknesses are to their interests, to put people in situations that are of more interest to them. A story I sometimes tell about, about my childhood, I actually went to a uh, very progressive elementary school outside of Washington, D.C. that was project-based. And we lived a lot of this. Like we really got, got to live a lot of this progressive learning and, and kind of thought that's, you know, that's what school was for, for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, my, my images were, were, were shattered later on when I, you know, moved and I switched schools and I didn't really know what I was looking at. But we had this, you know, it was very much a project-based approach where you also had some say in what you did. So for example, when I was fifth grade, so I was 10 years old, we had a project assigned in a very loose sense of assigned, I guess, but it was assigned where we had to learn about state governments. And the way we did that was by choosing a state and putting together a state, a sort of a, a scrapbook about the state. And so I might mean, probably talk about this project for half an hour. It was a really interesting project where you spoke with the state governments and you know wrote letters and made phone calls and all kinds of things. You know, this is pre-internet when I was 10 years old and did a lot of research and worked with your friends who were in the class who were researching their own states. And it was a really fascinating project, but it started with you actually got to pick the state. It gave you some kind of choice and embedded interest already in what you were starting to do. Exactly. And for me, I chose, I was born in the state of Pennsylvania where I lived for one year. My father was finishing his PhD there and I lived there for one year. So I didn't know very much about Pennsylvania, but I was interested in Pennsylvania. So that it was the state of my birth already made the project so much more personal in that way and, and gave me much more ownership of it. Mm. Um, and I was the same exact project looking at a different state, no offense to the other states, but you know, they wouldn't have been as meaningful, right? Mm. You know, it had to be a state that I had ties to New York where my family is from, Maryland's where we were living at the time, Pennsylvania where I was born. Those were the, you know, those were the three that had meaning to me. If it was a different state, maybe not so much. And and there's something there too. And I think at the, with the workplace level, we can really take advantage, personalized approaches to learning, give, give people experiences that they can control much more, determine the paths that they take all within the context of learning the job, but, you know, not being as in, as in lockstep with, with everybody else, even in the sort of, you know, online sense of lockstep that you're all doing the same self-paced exact thing, maybe at slightly different times, but to, to make it a much more um, individualized and, and individualized uh, in the sense of control as well experience. Absolutely. And that is so important. And it's something that you hear a lot about in terms of schooling, in terms of having that agency in school to, to be engaged with your specific choice of a, what to learn. But I think there's a lot less known about that in the workplace. So usually in the workplace, it's much more prescribed of this is what you need to achieve in order to do this job. So how do you see personalization unfold in the workplace? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I actually think as time has gone on, more and more jobs, and almost I almost want to say all jobs, we're getting close, really have some, you know, have some level of control in the actual job. Like there, there are very few jobs that you're doing now or people are doing them that are that are so regimented that everybody should do exactly the same thing. Like if it's that regimented, it's probably going to be automated if it's not automated. Mm. Right. The jobs that people are doing are the jobs that require some decision making discretion. And I think that also goes along with the need to hire people and train people and, and put them in positions to succeed and so that they can make those decisions. Um, what each person needs to do to get to the right point where they're an expert at the job is always a little different. People come in with different experiences and different skills and different backgrounds and things aren't necessarily better or worse, but they are different. And, you know, an opportunity here to put people in a position where they can both feel from the beginning that their skills are appreciated and also from the business standpoint, use their time most efficiently, right? So there's, mm -hmm. these things aren't always in, in alignment. And I think one of the nice things is that they kind of are in alignment, right? This kind of feels like there's what's good and comfortable and education and, and training and what does that mean? And how do you work efficiently for the business? And I don't think those things are at odds here. I think they actually yes. are in alignment. And it's a good reminder of the importance of really thinking through when you're creating a learning experience, think about the learning outcome that you want to achieve, but then thinking about all these other aspects of it, of what are people bringing to it? How can it be diversified and personalized so that it really does get embedded? The learning does get embedded then in the work uh, that yeah. people do afterwards. It's a very important reminder for that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of uh, personalization, the other thing that you wrote about is just-in-time learning and performance support. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you see that? Sure. Um, I mean, I think there's been a traditional tendency to um, in organizations to overtrain. I think we're moving away from that as organizations are moving away from that substantially. But again, that was kind of, you know, emanated, I think, from the traditional school model. Like, you know, you want people to learn, you put them in a class. And then that's not necessarily the best way for people to learn or the best use of their time. And often it's, it's not the best way. So within that, there is sort of, you know, what are the best ways to learn when you're doing, when you are learning. But beyond that is there are a lot of things that you don't really need necessarily to learn because you can look them up just in time. There's There's a lot of stuff that may need to know for my for my own job. And, you know, I can look it up when I need to know it. Yes. And I don't need to have memorized everything I need to know about the job. There are, if I need to make a complex decisions, suppose that I'm a, I'm a salesperson, I'm in the middle of a sales process and I need to make some decisions about handle how to handle a particular situation. I've got a prospective client and they're pushing back a little bit, but I'm not right there in front of them, right? So, you know, if you're right there in front of the person, you can't really go, let me check on this. You have to go continue the conversation. But often these days, you know, there's kind of a, a dragged out, you know, sales process with, with people communicating in different one meeting after another and by email and whatever. So you could take the, you know, you could take the time to go explore. So how can I make this best, the best decision? You might look at stories of what other people have done. You might look at advice from other people. You might ask other people for advice. You know, you could have a, a you know, a, you could build, someone could build and design and build a little sort of decision tree that helps you handle the most common objections that might give you some some clues as to how to handle things. And all of those things would be useful on a just-in-time basis, would no longer be something that you would feel compelled to be part of the training. This works particularly well, I think, for things that are occasional situations that you don't encounter so often. So even if they were part of your training, even in an active learning training approach, they you might have a great learning experience and by the time you need something, it's it's a year later, and you even then you you just don't remember everything. And so the idea of just in time learning and just in time performance support something that really helps you do the job is going to minimize the need for training and also help people being able to perform a job well uh, more quickly and be able to to focus more on achieving their performance goals and be able to do that you know with with less training and less costs. Absolutely, and in order to do that kind of training well, it really requires that the person who's the learning and development specialists at the organization that they really know the type of job that they're trying to create training for, either knowing the job or really deeply engaging with people in that job, isn't it? To know what parts you should be learning in in micro doses at different parts, different times, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a really, that's a great point. I think that you brought up about the, you know, an overall approach to learning design, right? Where there's sort of a traditional philosophy that you would start and break down, you know, what the, the key topics are. And, and, you know, that's not really the approach that, that I tend to follow and that I tend to, to prefer and recommend, but the approach is, is along the lines of what I think you're saying, which is, you know, you start with understanding the job. You start with understanding what's it like to do this job? What matters? What are you trying to accomplish? What are, what are the misconceptions people might have? What are the barriers you may face? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it? You know, it's a much more holistic approach yes. and that helps you then figure out from a design perspective, what kind of experience, what kind of product you might want? Is this a group of people that would benefit from some initial training? Is it a group of people that would benefit from something that's performance support? And then more specifically, what kind? I mean, I, I know I've, I've walked into organizations where I've been asked to do something in particular and found that, you know, the initial ask, which kind of came from not the people we're working directly with, but came kind of from above, um, wasn't necessarily the right thing. Unfortunately, there have been some cases where we've been able to change it. One of those was a group of salespeople at a high-tech company were asked to do a learn-by-doing sales simulation for them. And then early on, met with the actual you know members of the target audience to understand what the job was about. And it was clear within about the first three minutes, maybe two minutes, that this was not a group that wanted training of any kind. They were learning to sell something new, which is what we were supposed to teach them. Their view was, we are salespeople. We know how to sell. Okay. Okay. Give me the information about the product or service and we will go sell it. Why are you guys even here? Hmm. And we were able to reconceptualize the project and and client contacts are totally on board with us. And we we got there on this to be much more focused on just-in-time stories from people who've, who've encountered similar situations with a little bit of, of online practice that was cast as practice, not as training and was optional. 
And, and it was an entirely different setup. Otherwise it was gonna be really rejected. People might do it, but they would do it because they were mandated and they would do it reluctantly and unhappily hmm. and get the least out of it that they could and do it just so they could move on. And so part of this also was understanding the, the target audience in as deep a way as you can. And whether you're coming from the outside or whether you're already a member of the target audience, which is, which is great, but you know, you, you, you always have that. That's, that's a key to, to all of this is what's right for this group in the context of their, you know, of their roles and of their work lives and of their workflow on a daily basis. That's a great example because it's true. You, you don't really know what is needed or what the obstacles or challenges of a specific job are unless you really engage with the people who are doing that job. And that happens through so many, so many different sectors. In my own research, I was seeing that with teachers and the implementation of technology in the classroom but it happens in every sector. You may be an expert in what you're trying to teach, but you don't actually know how that plays out and what the hindrances or the needs are of that particular job. So that's really, that's a great example. You know, I think even more so in today's world with, you know, the majority of people working, you know, and, and sort of, you know, traditional office jobs working from home um, during the pandemic and, and quite possibly working from home substantially as in the future. It also changes the way that people's days are, you know, and, and you think, you know, there are different distractions, there are different flow of the day. And, yes. you know, we, we kind of have to think about that as well. The traditional workways, you know, well, everybody's just got to focus on work. And, and that's true in sort of the big picture sense. I mean, I'm certainly you're paying people, you expect them to be able to focus on work, but nobody can focus at, at maximum capacity, whether you're home or in an office or anywhere else, you can't focus at maximum intensity all the time. I mean, you can do that, you can burn out in a week. And thinking about what the, what the balance is and how to provide people with things that will help them perform at their best. Part of what you provide is things that are going to fit into a manageable workday lifestyle. And, and those are those are challenges that change even more as we sort of blend work and non-work. We, we already were doing that because of technology, right? We're already doing that because it's hard to disconnect. And then even more so, everybody working from home. Yeah. And although this is really complex, that you need to look from all these different sides and bring in educational research and good methods and combine it with the latest technologies or the technologies that work best for it and think about the job and how people work and how that work is performed. That's a lot to think about, but it really does mean either your efforts fall flat and people don't learn, or they really learn and get even more engaged in their job. It's a very much a make or break situation, isn't it? I think absolutely. I think that's, 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 a, that's a great point. And, and I think you know, you're kind of bringing up something that I think I have seen where it, sometimes there's sort of a mandate from higher up in an organization to build, you know, some something and to mm. create some kind of train product. And, and, you know, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, sometimes that's, sometimes it's better to just not do it, right? <laughs> right. Sometimes yes. it would be better to not have something than to have something that's really kind of going to be off-putting and, and with people who aren't performing the job any better because it's not really helping them in a way that, that connects to job performance. And that's yes. something organizations struggle with, I think still quite a bit is, is, you know, making sure that, learning development initiatives are connected performance. And that's, I certainly hear that. I mean, I know it's a focus and it's a focus much more than, than ever before, but it, it is a challenge and it does take a lot of effort. And I think there's still places in organizations higher up where it's not as obvious to all the higher ups that this is, this is a very significant challenge and, and there's a lot to think about. And a lot of, of time needs to go to design before development. It's not just a matter of jumping in and pushing content out to people and saying, look at that, now we've got our training. Absolutely. Absolutely. And design is something that you just brought up and it's extremely important in all of this. So can you tell me a little bit about the design in workplace learning? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, design is, is critical. And I mean, design in the sense of sort of the, the overall, as you, as you mentioned, the overall experience that people have. I think there's a tendency to think of design as being a little more superficial or, or thinking about it in terms of, of graphic design. That's certainly a part of it, but really it starts to me with the goals in the audience. What is it that we want to accomplish? And who's the audience for this for this particular product? And then you want to design an experience around that. And what that experience is can almost be anything. And sure, you're going to have to scope to something that's practical and possible and, and appropriate. But I think you want to start with what do we want to accomplish and what's the right way to do that for the audience that we have, what's important to this audience and what will help them perform best. And you know that's very different, I think, from then starting with what do we have and what content do we need 
people to know. You're really starting from a perspective of performance and a perspective of overall goals. Because the goals are, you know, the overall goal in an organization is performance and, you know, really behavior change. But along with that are these things that, that sometimes get pushed to the side and I don't think should, that it's not just even knowledge and skill, though certainly, you know, those things are, are, are critical things, but it's the emotional component too. It's how do people connect to the experience? How do they feel about the company? How do they feel about their work? How do you put them in a position where they're most motivated and feel the, the the most a part of what the work is and, and the company and all of that helps people succeed and, and they around establishes the culture that you want to establish. So, you know, when, when I look at how do you design the best experience, you, ideally you're starting with some of the things we started to talk about before, which is understanding the job and understanding the audience and, and talk to members of the target audience. And if you can watch them do the job, you know, do it. Actually, the, uh, the customer service simulation I mentioned before, we had a, a team of people go out and shadow people and, and they were literally sitting in the shadows. They were literally off to the side watching <laughs> customer service experiences and people knew that we were, we were going to be there and getting a feel for everything from the language that people use to the way that people would respond to the difficult situations, to unexpected things that would happen during the day. And, and all that really, really matters. Um, I actually had another project in retail for retail store managers who sit in the kind of the back office. And the original idea of that, of that was to be, uh, and again, it kind of came from sort of, you know, the, the contract to be a simulation that would, in which the store managers would do a pretty in-depth, you know, spend a couple hours on it and really manage an entire store for a couple hours and deal with the things that came up. That seemed like a really good concept. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it was a really good concept. Um, however, when we sat down to talk with the actual people who were actual store managers, and we did this on site in their in their offices, so we went and talked with them in their offices, we found that the idea of asking someone to do two hours of any kind of training, no matter how immersive and interesting it was, was going to be impossible because they didn't go more than 10 minutes without getting interrupted by something that was urgent. Like there was really no way that they were going to be sort of on the clock at their retail job. So either the company is going to have to pay them two hours extra each person to be somewhere else and do this simulation, which they don't want to do, or it was going to have to be reworked in concept to, to fit the way that they could use it. So that's also a big part of the experience. So I think you're looking at starting from this perspective of, of what's Right for Ben, you can leverage what you know. Certainly, want to leverage what you've done in the past, different methods, different things that you've seen, and, and different things that you've done. But there is a strong level of of customization of the experience. I think is what really makes it makes it right for the audience and makes it resonate. And, and you know, there's no magic to it, but in a certain sense, there is. Right. So there's no there's no magic bullet, but there's magic. Yes, <laughs> I guess is what I'd say. There's an art and a science to it, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, they, and and that's where the research comes in. Have research that tells you that things will transfer the job better when people learn by doing and learn in context rather than by memorization. There's a lot of research that goes, but then in trying to, to transfer that to the experience is, is really integrating the research rather than, than transferring it directly. It's designing something that leverages the research rather than simply tries to take it and, and, and directly turn it into a product. Exactly. That that's so, such an important thing. That's really, really good. The four concepts that you that you discussed that really make a huge difference for, for workplace learning is learning by doing, personalization, just-in-time learning, and user experience design. So these are all really important aspects of reimagining what workplace learning looks like. But can you tell me a little bit about some of the key technologies that you see coming up? What are some of the ways you think people can leverage these upcoming technologies that you think would be useful? Yeah, absolutely. Several key technologies that are they're poised to or maybe starting to reach a little bit more mainstream usage, which gets us to the point where they can start to really make an impact in organizations. And, you know, I think what we want to think really carefully about, again, is, is sort of how do you take those technologies and, and make the best out of them, right? Like not just replicate a class in a new technological environment, but do what the technology supports and allows and come up with, with creative, imaginative ways to do it. One is virtual reality. And we're seeing virtual reality headsets becoming more and more available and, and much more affordable. And so that's a technology takes some adjusting. It takes some getting used to, but it gives you the opportunity to really be much more immersed in, in the three-dimensional world and also with uh, with gestures too, right? And we're seeing that the, you know, the newer ones 
you know, you can be, uh, you're starting to be untethered and, you know, and, and use some gesture control. And so there's, that gets us into a whole new world of the kinds of learn by doing experiences we can produce. And, and certainly, particularly for me, coming from my background, simulations is one of those. So imagine a customer service or sales simulation where instead of seeing someone on video, effective as that actually has been relative to other approaches, imagine if this person feels much more real because you're, you're in a virtual world and they're right there with you. And we could have a coaching component that would jump in and sort of stop the simulation and advise you when necessary. And you could decide maybe to turn the coaching component on or off. So, mm. you know, I'm going to start with the coaching component to help me through. I need a little advice and now I'm going to turn it off and I won't have this person jumping into my virtual world and helping me. You can really imagine getting a lot of the personalization of a really great individual mentorship coaching relationship through a virtual environment along with the actual experience. I think this is really only the beginning that the world of virtual experiences can grow and grow. And there's, there's so much that, that people can do and that designers can do as they start to, to sort of really jump into the, the types of experiences that we can create. And as we see that this can be rolled out on a much larger scale. So what do you think are the main considerations that someone should think about when they're considering virtual reality? So maybe it's not necessarily important to have people sitting around a conference room table and recreating a meeting in virtual reality. What do you think are the really important aspects when you're thinking, maybe I should think about virtual? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it all, you know, it again, kind of comes back to goals and audience, right? So you think about what is it that we want to accomplish? And I think that helps drive kind of what the best methods are and where to best, you know, where to best spend your money and where to best spend the resources on it. So, you know, if you think of sales situation, maybe you, you want to have somebody interact with a potential customer and you get this sort of immersive feel for interacting with a customer, as you mentioned, you know, something that's just a meeting, you know, might not be the right thing. If there's something critical in the meeting where you want people to learn how to interact with a, a, a simulated meeting and, you know, it's, it's, it's some kind of objections, maybe that would be a better fit. And so mm -hmm. I think at least part of it is, is thinking about what kinds of things people really need to know how to do. And then from that, is the simulation going to be the, the right way to do it? And is it worth the investment? Absolutely. What other technologies do you see as up and coming yeah, another one, another one we're seeing now, um, augmented reality is the idea that, you know, you enhance real world objects with technology. You know, Google Maps has a new version that I'm actually not sure is out yet, but I know a new version that they're at least working on where, you know, as you're, as you're walking around, if you want to walk around with your phone on Google Maps, that it's not just going to tell you where you are, but it might point out things that are interesting about where you are. You can imagine with augmented reality, maybe you don't have to learn all that much about repairing an air conditioner because you can do it just in time. Mm -hmm. So imagine... I need to do some diagnosis on the air conditioner and the augmented reality portion of my phone. I, I scan the air conditioner and it's going to point me to, okay, well, here's what you need to do. Walking you through the process. You would still get better and better at the process. There's, you know, I don't think we're at, you know, anywhere near the point where this is a roboticized thing and, and, you know, nobody needs to repair an air conditioner, but we, we can be getting to the point where the job can be much more ported on a just-in-time basis. And you're not relying as much on things that people may or may not remember and they'll be able to work more efficiently. Mm. And so that's, you know, an area where we might see augmented reality. So the, the, the connection between augmented reality and, and just-in-time learning and, and just-in-time performance support, I think, is potentially very, very strong. And, and there is an adjustment. It's an adjustment for people to get accustomed to different ways that technology impacts their lives and, and to decide that they want that. And there, that's right. certainly an issue. But it's, you know, it's starting to be there. And, and we're going to start to, I think, see more of it in everyday life, which then makes it a lot easier to integrate it into, into workplace learning. Yes. So there's, there's that as well. That's a really interesting way of using aug augmented reality because it's one thing you learn something in the classroom or from the book, but then you forget parts of it when you're actually doing the job. And this is such a great way to have just-in-time refresher and triggers on how to actually Im improve your job, isn't it? Rather than just having a checklist, but you can actually say, wait, how does this work again? And the augmented reality can show you a a little video. So that would be a really great way of enhancing the learning. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it could really, you know, it could both point you to the actual place and the actual thing and show you a video of somebody performing the task that you should probably perform next. And we could have both of those available to someone. And I think those would be great. Okay. So we have virtual reality, augmented reality, and you also talked about holograms. So this is a very interesting concept that I think mainly we see as terms of art or in terms of uh, sci-fi movies. But how do you see holograms playing a part in workplace learning? 
Yeah, no, they seem they seem futuristic, and and probably are a little more futuristic than than the others in terms of being you know particularly useful at this point. Certainly, the the more near term probably is is projecting somebody who you're actually talking with, so it feels more like you're in a room, you know, even than a, than a Zoom meeting. So that's a you know one approach that's a little bit less of the self directed, self paced learning environments that that I'm otherwise focusing on. But that's certainly one thing that you know you can imagine as a possibility. And, and there is always the, the concern that it will simply seem strange to people um, and take a long time for people to get accustomed to, but mm. I'd like to think it it would. But then, you know, I can also imagine a world where sort of all these technologies come together, including artificial intelligence, which I'll, I'll talk more about in a second. And you have really sort of an intelligent hologram. So you might have, instead of in the old fashioned world, putting on your VR goggles, if you want an immersive experience, if you have a place where you've got some space, uh, you might be able to get the feel of interacting with a real coach or a real, an AI kind of character, you know, whether, whether you're going back to interview Socrates or whether you're going to work with a customer, whether you're going to work with somebody who's an expert in your field, and you can see these projected and feel like it's much more of a natural interaction. At least I think it's possible mm -hmm. that it might feel like an artificial interaction and it will take some time before it feels natural at all. This is, it'll be interesting to see how people feel about it. And imagine that if, if you had you know, real space without goggles and you got to have that kind of experience. And so that, that's down the line. But to me, that's kind of a dream in terms of, of the kind of um, learn by doing experiences you could potentially have. Mm. No, that's interesting. And it's really important about that and what you were saying is the fact of thinking about any technology, thinking what is the unique allowance that it provides for learning? Why would I use uh, VR if I could just use a, a good conferencing camera? Or why would I use um, any, any technology? Why would I use it? What is it providing that nothing else could provide in such a good way that is important for the experience and the learning? So um, as technologies change, but I, I think the conversation still remains the same in that respect of finding the best use, not necessarily the latest technology. Yeah, I know. I think absolutely right. And probably even, you know, in a certain way, even more so within, well, I guess really anywhere, but particularly within organizations where you, you there are always budget issues, right? So there's, that's a sort of the, the follow on to that is what's really going to be worth it. And, mm. you know, I think you want to experiment as well. I'm a big fan of experimentation and spend investing some money and trying some different approaches. And, and I, I tend to recommend and prefer the idea of starting with the ideal and then scaling back. So it helps you envision and imagine what the ideal can be. And then sometimes even when you when you start there and you scale back, you sometimes scale back to something that's a little bit different than maybe what you would have started with. Mm -hmm. So you're scaling back to something that's still a step closer to the ideal, even if you don't have all the budget in the world or the technology isn't quite there yet, or it's not quite affordable or, or whatever, that you at least get yourself to a position in terms of the experience you're designing that's one step closer. You know, you may start with starting with sort of the, the ideal concept um, and then scaling back helps you. And, and in that is absolutely what, you know, the point that you just made, which is thinking about what technologies are going to be appropriate for what kinds of, of audiences and, and goals. I like that thought experiment. Always think of the ideal and then pair it back to what's realistic and most appropriate. That's a really great way to think about it. And the fourth technology, which is talked about constantly these days is artificial intelligence. So what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and where do you see it best fitting into to workplace learning? Yeah, no, really is talked about um, a lot today, which is a change after not really being talked about at, at all. I was PhD work was really kind of at the intersection of artificial intelligence and education. And some of it came during what became considered the AI winter, where AI was considered to be kind of a semi-failed field and, and you know, it wasn't really something you wanted to put on your resume for a while. <laughs> well, we tried that and didn't get anywhere. You know, that has, has certainly changed. And I think the expectations originally were just, just overwhelmingly too high. I think the expectation was by the year 2000, we would have, you know, robots that had the capability of humans, which besides being somewhat of a, of a scary thought, was certainly not going to happen by, by the year 2000, right? We close. There, you know, there are things out there in the field now now where you're, you're hearing people talk a lot about AI for analytic purposes, for, you know, looking at the uh, strengths and weaknesses and, and, and sort of skills. And I think that's good in some ways. It's a little dangerous in some ways in that to get very caught up in scores. I, I hope we don't get to a point where we're using a lot of the information only for evaluation and say, you know, we want to be able to compare someone versus someone else. Like, I kind of, I mean, I, I kind of look at the entire world of work and, and education as helping people performing their best and find the, the role that's best for them. And, you know, the, the idea of 
focusing on scores is more drives us kind of the other way. Where I, one of the areas where I really see AI contributing a lot and, and and would like to see more is in providing experiences. So you know, when before we talked about the learning by doing environments and personalized experiences, you know, and a lot of this goes back to sort of my, my older background. You know, that's where AI can really, really help. You know, if, if an AI engine is getting to know, an AI system is getting to know a person's strengths and weaknesses, it's tracking data, it's tracking what you do. You can imagine a world in which these experiences become more and more personalized and more and more appropriate for every individual and, and everything from, this is kind of, you know, really to me, it's a, it's a it's a means to accomplishing a lot of the things that we've been talking about in this. And along with that is certainly the concern that that's a lot of personal information that's out there. And so privacy is going to be an issue. But from the ideal experience standpoint, you know, this is where you can really get to the point where it's like you have a system that knows you the way that your favorite teacher ever knew you, but can transfer to any different area, right? Like it really knows and I think that's where AI can really, really come in and, and, and make a difference um, mm -hmm. over time with the, 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 you know, the general caveat of what, what happens to all that information and you know, making sure that it's secure enough to be used for uh, only for good. Yes, no, absolutely. In all of these different strategies and the fast pace with which our working world is moving, what do you think is challenging for learning and development professionals in workplaces or leaders in, in workplace learning? What do you think is most challenging for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are definitely, um, there are definitely major challenges in doing this. On, on one hand, the big picture change is simply difficult. You know, we're, we're talking about trying, you know, any kind of more radical change is, is always really, really hard. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of effort that has to take place to change people's mindsets and to change the way that people think more and more, which I think is starting to happen about yeah. learning and education and learning development of what, what that really means and, and move more and more away from traditional memorizing test models and reading tests to this idea that it's much more open and personalized world and, and much more experiential and much more learned by doing and much more customized and therefore much harder to get a handle on. You're surrendering control in certain ways. You're looking at things in a, in a, very, in a very different way. And that's certainly one of the big challenges. And along with that, is something that I think people face a lot even now in organizations, which is organizations have a technological base that's often a barrier and it's often hard to change. You know, people, companies have learning management systems that often drive what learning you can even produce, which is really not the ideal approach to have the technology constraining the learning and driving certain approaches rather than being able to support whatever it is. And so, you know, there are movements to improve all of these things, but they're, they're far away and they're slow. I mean, you know, the bigger the organization, the, the harder it is to be, to be nimble and mm. to move quickly in terms of IT changes. IT is generally not a part of the learning function. I generally, you know, IT is generally another group. And, and I know I speak to a lot of organizations who feel that they have to work tremendously hard to find the right relationships within IT and work together. I mean, you know, IT as a group is generally tasked with making sure things don't break. The best way to make th sure things don't break is to not be experimental, right? Yeah. That's, you know, and that really goes against a lot of what you want to do. And so there's a huge challenge there organizationally to sort of navigate and create, creating change uh, within the organization and bringing, you know, so we're doing so many new things with technology, bringing IT with you and, and getting IT to buy in and, and all that. There's certainly a change conceptually in what you want to do both within the organization at the top and then even in terms of what the learners are going to expect and learners really at all levels. And then working your way through it technically is always going to take some effort. And I think those, those, are, those are challenges. I don't think there are challenges that cannot be overcome, but they mm. absolutely take a tremendous amount of, of effort and skill and leaders that will to navigate some tricky political waters and, and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. And you said that this is complex in so many different ways, and especially for large organizations, it takes time. Unfortunately, there is very little time because as the type of work changes so quickly, although literature has been saying this for a very long time, academic literature, that workplace learning needs to really improve and be interwoven into the work. But now it's becoming an urgent role of making sure that workplace learning is very effective and happening continuously. So what would your top tips be? Because you work with a lot of great organizations and you're in academia. What are some of your tips for workplaces on maybe how to tackle some of those challenges? Where should they start? Of course, it's a huge mountain to climb, but what are some top tips that can start to chip away and make, make improvements? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think you know one thing. One thing probably to do along the lines of quick hits is actually try to start with some quick hits in a certain sense. If you can try to find some things that are maybe simpler but effective that are a little bit different, you know, make the point that you know you can make kind of a financial and um, technological point that you know this is different, but this is going to get us somewhere. I think we're seeing more use of sort of outside you know, outside companies and outside systems so that you don't have, you know, everything maybe doesn't have to be housed in the LMS, which is going to limit you, but maybe you can just talk to the LMS and I'm seeing more and more of that. I think that's another thing to do is look at what else can you, can you do, you know, that's more interesting and doesn't necessarily rely on IT to support it particularly. And so you're, you're able to bring it in from the outside and try to work through that. Yeah. So I think those are a couple of things. And, you know, I think just the more, you know, and you kind of got to this before, the more you focus on people's workflow and what's going to help them within their workflow, the more you're going to get buy-in from the, the end users and the overall organizational audience. And so you might be able to get some things out that help you generate sort of public within the, the organization's employees wave of, uh, of opinion that can help drive change as well. And mm. if I was that. Yes, among all the amazing technologies, sometimes the best place to start is simply talking to the people in the organization and, and finding out what is the best uh, approach for them and the best uh, design for them. So Absolutely. that's a that's a really important reminder. My goodness, I mean, there's so much that we can cover in this topic. But before we leave, I would like to ask you if you have any recommendations on a book or a resource that you you find inspiring and interesting and listeners might find it as well. Yeah, um, one thing I can recommend is um, a book by a guy named Don Norman who has worked a lot in usability and, and related areas and cognitive psychologist called The Design of Everyday Things. Um, mm. It's been around for a while now. It was published, I think, originally in the, in the 80s. So it was originally, I think, under the title The Psychology of Everyday Things, but more recently, I believe, it's been The Design of Everyday Things. And he um, he, he writes about you know, everyday objects and how, you know, kind of how they work from a user experience perspective and why. And it's a fascinating book that, that helps you think about the life and things that you interact with in, in some new ways. And um, I think contributes a lot to, has certainly contributed a lot to my own understanding of, of audiences and, and goals and the way that people can best think about things and use things. And, um, you know, it's had a, a, an effect on my own design work. When I've recommended it to people before they've, they've usually felt that been able to, to have an influence on their own design thinking as well so that's that's one that i'd like to leave people with oh well that sounds really interesting thank you very much all right well it was such a pleasure to talk to you and so many great ideas in the conversation i really appreciate your insight and uh, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast today thanks so much for having me i, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, thanks again for having me on thank you